Amen, amen, amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, good morning, friends. My name is Alex. I serve as one of the pastors here as well, alongside Ricky. I'm still pretty sure he maybe cheated a little bit so that they could win. Did we at least get second? Oh, that's all right. Pioneer Palace will make a comeback again next year. Uh, friends, uh, I'd just love to open us up with some prayer uh, to start the morning. So let's pray. Jesus, you are the great God uh, that we have come to worship today. You are the God who continues to speak through your word. You are the God who is alive. You are the king who continues to reign. You intercede for us uh, today. Lord, we just ask that your word uh, would meet us and that you would speak to us in a way that continues to see how wonderful and uh, splendid you are, Lord. Uh, we just beg you that your spirit would continue to just stir up our hearts for affection towards you and that we would come to you uh, first and foremost for everything in our life, Lord. Would uh, our eyes always be fixed on you and would you continue to bring us closer to yourself, Lord? We love you. We ask this in your beautiful name. Amen. Uh, church, have you guys ever entered into like a, a weird party? You ever gone somewhere where it's just super awkward and you walk in and you're kind of like, I have no idea what is happening in the room today. Uh, today, we read a scripture that has one of the weirdest birthday parties I've ever uh, read about. And it's just kind of like, I'm not sure what's happening. And so all week, I was kind of starting to think like, man, when's the one time I've entered into like a place, a situation, a gathering of people that has just been extremely awkward? And I started thinking, oh, man, I can't figure one out. And so it dawned on me, that must mean I'm the one throwing the weird parties. <laughs> But as I was thinking about it, I got to go to a wedding for some of our uh, members last night, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm trying to find an awkward thing that happened, and the most awkward thing that I could think that happened that morning is Dakota, one of our elders, just stepped onto the dance floor. Uh, and so, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, and so, Dakota's actually a great dancer. He had some moves, okay? Uh, I didn't preface to him that I was going to make that joke, so sorry, man. But uh, anyway... Uh, well, let's get into the scripture, okay? Um, so as we're thinking about just the most awkward birthday party you could ever witness, read about, or hear about, uh, you're just kind of struck in this way that makes you go, what in the world is going on here? Matthew, he's been continuing to point his readers to Jesus as we've been studying the gospel of Matthew for several months now. And we walk into this passage where John the Baptist is reintroduced. We've read about John the Baptist multiple times, right? He paved the way for the ministry of Jesus. Uh, he proclaimed the repentance that all would hear and come to the one who is coming, the lamb, right? Jesus himself. And we heard him just continue to witness and baptize people over and over again. And then we get this scene a couple of chapters ago. I think Eric even referenced it in his call to worship where he's in jail and he's kind of struggling with this sense of doubt and he's wrestling with something that's kind of happening. And so he sends his disciples and he says, go find out if Jesus is who he actually says he is. Jesus encourages him and his disciples go back to tell John who he is. Now, at, throughout this whole time with John the Baptist, and then we get to this point where we're 
in this awkward scene where there's King Herod and he's got this weird birthday party going on, the, the stage is set for us in the first two verses as we look to it. So uh, what I want to do for us today is I really just want to walk through the whole passage right away. And then I want to highlight some things that we can see and take away from this because uh, the timeline of this is kind of all over the place. But uh, as we look at this passage, the first 12 verses here in chapter 14, the first two verses set the stage, like I said, it's current time. So we read that Herod, the Tetrarch, he hears about Jesus. He hears about these miracles that, that he's been performing, people who have been healed. He's proclaiming these things, saying that he's king. And Herod, we kind of go back and we're like, wait, is this the same Herod that was all the way back when Jesus was an infant and he went and he mass murdered a bunch of children uh, because he was afraid that someone would dethrone him from the king. That's actually Herod the Great. That's this Herod's father. So Herod the Tetrarch or aka Herod Antipas, uh, this is the one who we're dealing with today. So he's not his dad who kind of mass murdered all those children at that time, but uh, he's another wicked king. But he hears about this Jewish Messiah doing all this stuff. And as we look to the story, we're kind of like, okay, this man's clearly messed up. He, he's got some things going on in, in his life that are kind of moving him in such a way. He's got this reference to John the Baptist. He hears this, and his first thought is to go, oh, John the Baptist. That means he's raised from the dead. Uh, so then we get even a little bit more insight into what is really happening in verses 3 to 5 in the relationship between Herod Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch, and John the Baptist. Between the two of them, we see how they interact and really what John has said to Herod and how he rebukes him for marrying Philip, his brother's wife. So as we read about this, it's a reference for us to kind of take in and say, okay, cool. John the Baptist is going to the guy who would consider himself a king over Jewish people, and he shares with him that he's unlawfully married his brother's wife. And as I was kind of sitting here reading and reading some commentaries on this relationship between Herod and Herodias, uh, it, it's not just that he married his brother's wife, but there's other family tree lines that kind of blur it. And I literally could not draw, I was trying to draw out like the map of how they were actually related. I couldn't even figure it out. I was, I was, I was sitting there. It's much more complex than just that he took his brother's wife. But Leviticus 18 talks about, hey, it's unlawful to take your brother's wife. And so as we start reading this, John goes and he says, hey, uh, you are proclaiming yourself to be the king over some Jewish people. And so you're upholding yourself then to be someone who is uh, overseeing and actually participating in Jewish law. So I'm going to hold you to that standard. So John the Baptist then goes forward to him and says, it is unlawful for you to be married to her. It's unlawful for you to have this relationship with her. And because of the tension that starts to build here between the two of them, uh, Herod and John, they, they start to see this weird class that we get a glimpse of here where Herod wants to kill John, but at the same time, he doesn't want to deal with having to, con having to actually confront his sin. He's frustrated over the fact that he's getting rebuked. And, and then it, we get an insight into Matthew or Mark chapter 6. If you go to Mark chapter 6, it's just the parallel. Um, and we get some more insight into actually what's happening in this story. We read that Herod considers John to be a righteous and holy man, and that Herod would be confused, or that Herod uh, was confused at John's teaching, but he actually even enjoys listening to him teach. So we see this kind of sense of like, okay, Herod likes hearing John teach, but at the same time, he wants to kill him because he's being rebuked by him. And he's kind of like conflicted in what's going on in his heart. He's conflicted in what's going on in his mind and what he should really do. 
But he throws John in jail because uh, on account of Herodias is what Mark chapter 6 tells us. He throws him into jail because he's being rebuked. And then verses 6 to 12, if we walk through those, we kind of see the awkward birthday party, right? So this is a flashback. So verses 1 to 2 set the stage. Verses, uh, verses 3 to 5 kind of tell us, hey, what, what was the rub between these two? Why was John in jail? And then verses 6 to 12 are a flashback to how John the Baptist was killed. So it's kind of weird if you just read it, you're like, okay, how do I piece this together? But if we go backwards, we start to see, oh, this is starting to make sense about what happened once John was placed in jail. And sadly, we have this story of Herodias who offers up her daughter to go dance seductively uh, in front of a bunch of men in a room. And it, it, it's just wicked when you sit back and think about it. And then it, even if you think about being somebody in the room, like I'm just sitting there thinking, how did none of them think that was weird? That's your stepdaughter who's dancing in such a way that like pleased him so greatly that he offered to give her whatever she asked for. It's just weird. It's wicked. It's gross. It's disgusting to really think about. And in the middle of it all... The girl then is told by her mom, Herodias, hey, you can have whatever you want from him. I want you to go ask for John the Baptist's head on a plate. Oh, okay, so she's not only just asking her daughter to go dance seductively in front of a bunch of men, she's now asking her daughter to go and ask for a dude's head on a plate. So she does, and then... She gets the head on a plate. She has to take it back to her mom. I, I couldn't imagine what that whole scene was like. John was brutally murdered uh, as an innocent man where his head was carried to Herodias. And at the end of it all, we read in verse 12, right, kind of the conclusion. Hey, so John then, his disciples came and they took away the body and they buried him. And as we're wrestling with all of this, we, we really see a, a bunch of tension and things that are just building and building and building, and you just see it spiral and, and go haywire all over the place. But as I'm reading this text and as I was spending time with it, I just kept finding myself asking myself the question, who do you fear? Because as we dive into this text and as we spend a little bit of time of it, I think that's a big question that it's actually asking us today, this morning. Who do you fear? And so we'll see that play out in a couple of different ways. And so the first point that I actually want us to see this morning, first point is the fear of man, the fear of man. So there's a couple of different ways in this passage that we see Herod actually start to reveal that he has this fear of man. Uh, and the first way that we see it creep in is at the very first or the third verse there. So I'm going to be flopping back and forth between the sections to just kind of tease these out. So keep your Bible in front of you because I'm going to tell you where we're at in the scripture. So verse three, um, verse three tells us that Herod first responds to John because he, he, not by what he wants, but based on account of a Herodias. So he says, verse three, for Herod had arrested John, chained him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So he doesn't even put the man in jail because he wants to do it. He puts John in jail because she wants him to do it. So we start to see his fear of man start to creep in. Then verse five says, Though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd since they regarded John as a prophet. 
So we see the tension. Okay, now Herod is actually wanting to murder this man, but he doesn't because he knows that the crowd has a high view of John. And so he's like, well, I'm not going to do that because that's going to stir up the people. I'm not touching that. Okay. Uh, And then Mark chapter 6, if you were to flip to the other account, we read that Herod even fears John himself because he considers John the Baptist to be a righteous and holy man. And, And as we look at this, we start to see the tension start to build, right? Three things already. Just in this first chunk, we start to read, Herod clearly cares what people think. Over and over, it's driving every impulse, every decision that he's making. And if you go to the flashback of the birthday party in verses 6 to 12, you start to read, okay, this dude's messed up because he's got his like stepdaughter who's dancing right in front of him. And then when the girl asks for his head on a platter, verse 9, we read that it says, although the king regretted it, he commanded that it be granted. Why? Because of this oath that he made. Now, if we kind of read the story and kind of uh, piece it together, we, we start to figure out, hey, he probably made this oath right after she was dancing. And so there's a crowd of other like leaders that are in the room with him. And so they would have heard him make this oath. And so he says yes to it and he regrets it. He, he's driven by like what other people are thinking and what other people are doing. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 26, it says that Herod was deeply distressed over this. He regrets it. He's deeply distressed. But at the same time, he still does it because his guests are watching. And the result is the death of an innocent man. So as we look to Herod's life, uh, we can walk away seeing that there's, hey, there, there's a sense of a conflicting heart here uh, to some extent. But most of all, He's driven by the approval of man. He's driven by the fear of other people around him. Herod clearly cares what people think, and that's going to continue to drive him to make these decisions. He makes a ridiculous oath. He jails an innocent man. He marries his brother's wife, uh, and he finally kills John the Baptist because he's too afraid about how other people might respond to his decision-making. His fear of man just rules him, and we start to see how like his fear of man drives him further down, Right? It starts with, oh, I'm going to throw this guy in jail because my brother's wife, who's now my wife, told me to. And it escalates all the way to the end to where he says, I'm going to behead this innocent man. And I'm going to regret this decision. He starts to see that his sin not only impacts him in the moment, but it leads to continue in the back of his mind, where if we flip all the way to the beginning, right? We're in a flashback. So if you go all the way to beginning... He, he's paranoid over this. You, you read it, and he hears about Jesus, and the first thing he does when he hears about Jesus, John the Baptist raised from the dead. Because it's, it's just in the back of his mind. He regrets that decision. We see how it kind of pieces together. And his sin has driven him to this point to where he's, he's got this sense of like paranoia over it. And again, it, it's led me to this point where I'm asking myself, I, I see Herod clearly as someone who fears man, who fears the approval of people, who fears what other people might do or how they might respond to him. And I found myself all week asking, well, who do I fear? And I've said it before multiple times on different accounts, but you guys know that I've communicated it to you. The approval of man is something that I desire, like the approval of you guys, approval of people that I care about, highly respect, love. I'm always like, oh, what do they think of me? 
And verses that always like strike me to the core of my heart are verses like in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John, they're before the Jewish council, and the Jewish council's telling them, hey, you need to stop talking about Jesus. And they respond with this. They say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They boldly stand on their proclamation of the faith. They boldly stand on the resurrection of Christ. Or in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, um, it says this, For I am now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I think I take those verses and I'm literally like, they just pierce me to the heart. Because I I've kind of see a lot of myself inherit sometimes. I'm sitting there and I have to weigh for myself. Man, am I gonna am I gonna fear the approval of people? Or am I going to fear God and am I going to stand firm on who he is and what he says? Then I can actually see this actually play out in my life in different ways. When I was in college, or right before entering college, I'd been kind of dating this girl. Well, it was a thing, you know, whatever that means. <laughs> and it's not Mariah, by the way. Uh, and I liked this girl a lot. We'd spent a ton of time together. She invited me to, she was a couple years older than me, so she was already in college. And she invited me to come to Lincoln and, um, and to like hang out with her and her friends. And then when I get to the party um, and I'm talking to some of her friends, I realize I'm like, oh, this is like a party. This is like a college party. And so I'm sitting there, a little 18-year-old who's never gone to college before, and I'm like, oh, shoot, okay, well, I want to impress this girl, and I want to impress her friends so she keeps liking me. And they're playing drinking games or alcohol kind of everywhere, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll, I'll have a drink. And I, I had strong morals to not drink kind of growing up, not because I, I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I had strong morals because uh, alcohol addiction is something that runs in my family. So it's like, I'm never going to do that because my dad's an alcoholic. All my uncles are alcoholics and they've all struggled for their whole lives with alcohol. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, oh but I'm going to bend because of this girl. I'm going to bend because I want the approval of these people. And that night then started a five-year just absolute battle between me and just seeking this life of partying because I thought if I was the life of the party, that meant that everybody was going to approve of me. I thought that everybody would think, oh, that's Alex. That's the guy who's always super fun to be around. I want to be around that guy. And so that point in my life led me down this dark and twisted path where I made terrible decisions for my life over and over and over again where it started with one moment where I said, oh, but I like this girl and I want her friends to like me. And so I just continued down this path for five years uh, where it just led me to try and impress people constantly. And all I wanted was those people to like me so that I would have the center of attention. And it led down a dark and twisty path. Who we fear will lead us to kill off anything else in our life. Who we fear will lead us to kill off anything else in our life. I had this moral value system for several years, my whole upbringing, right? Like I, I hated the thought of alcohol like ever entering my body because I was terrified that I would be led down this dark and twisty path that my dad had and that all my uncles had. And I bent because I wanted the approval of man. 
And then guess what? It actually happened, right? Like I just fulfilled that prophecy that I was telling myself, don't do it, don't do it. And then I fell into it. I chose to kill off my morals because I wanted the approval of people. Herod fears people, whether it's Herodias or the crowd or the oath that he makes for the approval of his guests. And it, he lets it consume him, right? His fear of man drives every decision that he starts to make. And so the question for us is, man, do we, do we fear people's approval more than we fear God himself? Do we fear people's approval more than we fear God himself? Because the fear of man actually isn't the only fear that we see that drives us in this passage today. So I want to move on to the second point that we see. And the second point that we see is the fear of exposure. The fear of exposure. So we see this both in Herod and we see it in Herodias. Both are confronted with their sin by John the Baptist in, in verse 4. And as John the Baptist kind of comes to them in verse 4, uh, we start to see, oh, they want to kill John, right? Verse 5, we read that though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd since they regarded John as a prophet. Mark chapter 6, verse 19, it reveals to us that Herodias holds a grudge against John and that she wants to kill him as well. The hatred of John is what's driving them, right, to hurt them. And they start to see, man, I don't want anybody to hear about this man who's telling me I'm in sin. And so I'm going to do everything I can to keep this man quiet. So they throw him in jail first. Then they cut his head off. And he's dead. All so that they could keep their sin hidden. But because John was holding them to the law right? He says, hey, if you're going to consider yourself someone who reigns over the Jewish people, and actually the, the Herod family would have considered themselves as, as practicing Jews, right? And so John says, okay, cool. I'll hold you to that standard then. You know what Levitical law says then. This is unlawful for you to do, man. You, you should not be married unlawfully to your brother's wife. And they go, well, let's do everything we can to shut him up. Do everything we can to kind of hide it so our sin is not exposed to the people around. And once they're exposed, they get so mad that they just do this wicked thing with the daughter, right? They just throw her into the picture and they say, go dance before him, dance before all these other men, and continue to just do all this terrible stuff to where they make her be the one. I have so much compassion for the daughter in this, and I'm, she might have enjoyed it all. It doesn't say, but like, I, I'm just sitting there thinking like, why would you do that? Why, why would you resort to that point? All so they can keep their sin hidden. All so they can continue to just have this fake face of who they are and let people not know that they're living this hidden life of sin or whatever. Herod and Herodias wanted zero exposure to their sin so much that they were willing to harm all the people around them. So much that they didn't even care about what it, how it affected other people. They wanted to keep up this image. They wanted to conceal their sins so much that they were willing to murder for it. So as we were talking about this passage in City Group the other night, uh, we started talking about how when we're typically confronted with sin, like if someone confronts you personally with your sin, there's three ways that we typically respond. The first way that we usually respond is uh, similar to what we see in this passage, and it's an offensive reaction, right? Someone comes to you, and you, they say, hey, um, I, I don't know that you kind of are walking with Jesus in this point. I think, I think maybe you need to reconsider some of the decisions you're making. Uh, no, you're a terrible person. 
and we just start to attack them, right? I, I do, I've done this in marriage. I actually, I probably do it a lot in marriage. My first reaction is to, is to actually like tear apart um, and, and come at Mariah with a bunch of other things. Like if she comes and tells me and she's like, hey, that, how you spoke to me earlier today, actually it really hurt my feelings and it wasn't great and you've kind of been a jerk lately and I'm just like, uh, well, I'm just a jerk because you didn't do the dishes. And, and like I start to attack and I start to, I mean, that was like a funny example, but I probably actually said that, um, <laughs> sadly. Um, but as I'm like thinking about those things, I'm just like, yeah, that's exactly how I respond when I'm confronted with my sin. When, when someone comes to lovingly rebuke me, my, my first instinct is to go into attack mode because I'm trying to protect myself. I, I don't want to be exposed. Or, or a second way that we respond is, is uh, similar, but we defend ourselves. And, and we're talking about this at Citigroup. And the way that this one looks is we try to like logically argue why we did what we did, right? Like, hey, uh, I'm frustrated with you over such and such thing. And all we do is we go into explainer mode. And we say, well, I did it because of step one and step two and step three. And so that's why I made the decision to do this. And we, make it, we paint it like it's not sin at all. And we start to just make this picture like, so that's how I got there. And it's godly. <laughs> and kind of lift ourselves up with it. <laughs> and our, our, our reaction usually is to attack or defend. And we kind of see this in this situation where we see like Herodias go into attack mode, right? She's like, well, we got to get rid of that guy. We got to shut him up. We got to make sure nobody could ever hear this man talk again. And we start to see this tension kind of build up and go, man, how often really does that happen in our lives though? How often when we get rebuked or when someone comes to us in a loving and gracious way where they have some things to talk to us about, do we respond with, okay, I need to actually consider what they're saying. I need to humbly listen to what my brother or sister in Christ is telling me because I've, I've offended them in some sort of way. And that matters, right? Those, those things matter. And so just like Herod responds by killing off John, we, we can be so afraid of our sin being exposed that we, we're the one attacking the person who's, who's coming to us, or we can deflect and we can try to explain with a bunch of these different reasons that we've committed the wrongs, the, that sin wrongly, and we try to explain it away to where it's actually not bad, and then the other person's sitting there going, wait, what? And they're all sorts of confused, and, and we just try to build this stuff up all because we don't want to be exposed. We want to hide everything. We want to hide our sin. We want to stay in the darkness as long as we can because we don't want people to know we're actually as bad as we are. When I transferred colleges, I spent two years at Hastings and then I transferred to Doan. Uh, when I transferred colleges, I really didn't know anybody. Didn't know a ton of people. I wanted everybody, though, to like me. Again, this approval thing is just driving me in a lot of decisions I make. And so I wanted everybody to think, man, that guy's super cool. So I was a music major for a couple of years, and uh, I was part of the college choir there on campus. And for whatever reason, I decided to come up with this lie that I told people. And I told loads of people that I'd auditioned for American Idol and got a golden ticket. That's not even where it stops. I also told people that I auditioned for The Voice, season four, and I was on Team CeeLo. I can be a really good liar when I want to. 
I had like 50 people convinced of it. I mean, I had loads of, I, I mean, I, w- I could tell you guys the entire lie. I, it was meticulous. Like, you would hear the story, and you'd kind of be like, whoa, is that real? And as I kind of got in college, I, I just kept telling the story because people kept asking me, and they, they were like, oh, this guy's so fun. Like, he was on The Voice. So people thought I was, like, halfway famous. And, and I was like, I'm telling this story and having these conversations. I'm actually, like, excited that people were, like, listening and, like, talking to me. And that's the way that they would introduce me to other people. And when I realized how many people, like, had believed this lie, I started to think, oh, shoot this is not good. Like, I'm thinking that in the back of my mind, but up front, I'm like, oh, yeah, CeeLo, he's the coolest dude ever. He's got these glasses, and he's always just chill, and I'm telling everybody what that experience was like, even though I never had it. It got to the point to where I honestly started to believe it. Like, I was like, I was on The Voice, you know? I'm trying to look myself up on YouTube. (laughs) But when people start hearing about this, it started to get to the point to where Like I said, other people were like introducing me to their friends or to their family, and that's like the first thing they're telling people. Oh, this is my friend Alex. He was on The Voice, and and, yes, I was. And the whole time it gets going, then I start dating Mariah, and then we start getting serious in our dating relationship. I convinced Mariah of this, and as we're having conversation, yeah, not good. (laughs) Um, I I convinced my, my now wife about this, And as we're kind of going through our relationship, there's a couple of times where she gave me an out. There's a couple of times where we're, you know, we're having conversations. She's like, did that really happen? And I was like, yes. (laughs) Like driving in the car, you know? (laughs) Yes, it did. I have the golden ticket at home. Um, It's in my bedroom. And every time we were home in Grand Island and she's like, let's go find a ticket. I was like, there's just so much junk down there. I I don't think we need to spend time doing that. But we're talking about this whole thing. And it got to the point to where our relationship started to get really serious. I realized, oh, I'm going to marry this woman. Like, I'm going to ask for her hand in marriage. And she still thinks that. She's like introducing me to her family. And she's telling that Alex was on The Voice. You know, it just comes her best friends. Oh, yeah, this is my, my fiance. He's on The Voice. And it literally took until a year after we were married It took that long. <laughs> Shane's giving me the look, man. <laughs> Ricky's just like, no. <laughs> that I'm like, I'd now become a Christian. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh gosh, I got to keep this lie for the rest of my life. <laughs> that we're driving to Grand Island for a weekend because I'm from Grand Island. And Mariah brings it up again. And I just busted out laughing. I lost it. I just was like, I'm so sorry. That's all a lie. And (laughs) and I just, it wasn't real. Um, And uh, I mean, so if you're in the room today and you believe that I was on The Voice, I'm sorry. I was not. Please give me the grace that my now wife has given to me. She's forgiven me. Praise God for a godly wife. (laughs) Jesus is so good. But, friends, the point is, I went through excruciating mental anxiety for years to not let myself be exposed. Right? 
all of those lies continue to build. And that's like a funny example. How much more do we do it with things that we don't actually want people to see about us? How much more do we try and keep like the, the darkness that's in our heart from people actually seeing it? We, we build up these lies. We hide the truth. We put up these fake curtains because we have desire for approval or we want to hide this exposure that we've got from people. And we have this really dumb lie that we just keep telling. So my question for us this morning is, what are you hiding? And how far are you willing to go? How far are you willing to keep that lie hidden? Herod and Herodias were willing to go as far as to kill a man so that they wouldn't be exposed. Maybe for you, it's a struggle with alcohol or pornography, drugs, a relationship that maybe isn't God-honoring. Hiding just honestly doesn't even really just have to be our sin. It could be different things that are happening in life. It might just be that you're hiding the fact that your marriage is totally falling apart and you haven't told anybody. Or it might just be that you feel like your marriage is falling apart and you haven't even told your spouse. It it might be that you're hiding this feeling of being lonely and, and it's driving you into this deep depression and you feel like you can't communicate that with anybody. Maybe you're hiding that you're frustrated with somebody that's a good friend and, and you just don't want to actually have to have a conversation and so you're keeping it, but everything feels like it's building and it's starting to become more hatred towards that person. Here's the beauty about this entire passage. We do not have to be so afraid of what other people think about us to continue to hide in our sin and we don't have to be afraid to be exposed We don't have to be afraid to continue to hide in darkness because I love the example that John the Baptist is for us, friends. He he reflects Jesus so much in this passage and throughout his whole ministry. The similarities are amazing. We were talking about this in Citigroup, and I literally told Citigroup, wait, 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 I have to take my phone out because I needed to take notes because everybody's just diving into this gold. But the similarities between John uh, and and Jesus are amazing. John the Baptist, he's the first one. What's What's he preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus's first proclamation in the gospel of Matthew is the exact same message. Uh, John approaches Herod right before his death. Jesus too approaches the same Herod right before his death. And also as we start to see that John's death was one that was demonstrated that's an innocent man who's killed over other people's sin. And as we look at Jesus's life, we see a man who is truly innocent, who willingly died for other people's sin. Both had disciples that came and took their dead bodies and put them in graves and buried them. The difference, though, between John and Jesus is when we look at John, John went to Herod to confront him with sin because he wanted him to turn to God. And when Jesus approaches us in our sin, he not only points us to himself, but he forgives us of it all. He absolves it completely. He takes it upon himself to say, you are mine and you are clean. We don't have to hide. We have the light of the world who has come to forgive us of all things. We have the good and gracious king who says, come to me. We have the one whose glory will light the new creation. 
Jesus is the innocent man that died for the sin of the world, and whoever would believe in him would no longer have to live in darkness. They they would no longer have to feel like they need to hide. You no longer have to feel like you need to be afraid of other people's approval because you have all the approval of the Father because of what Jesus has done, because of what he's done for you. Church, the fear of the Lord it leads us to a much different life than fear of man or fear of being exposed, right? It leads us to a much different life than Herod and Herodias because the fear of the Lord, it lifts us up out of darkness that we read about, right? The fear of the man leads us to live a life of sin and to feel like we're absolutely trapped by it. But the fear of the Lord leads us to have freedom from the chains of sin that we feel like we're in. The fear of man leads us to respond in hiding in darkness while the fear of the Lord allows us to not just to not be afraid to be confronted with our sin from other people because we know the light of the world, Jesus himself, right? It it is much greater. There is so much more freedom when we can say, I screwed up and I've got a savior who lets me live with freedom after that rather than a God who holds it against you. We have a God who graciously says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy burdened. Come to me, and I will give you rest. I have no rest when I'm wrestling and trying to hide my sin. Those are some of the most anxious moments in my life. When I feel myself trying to cover up things that I don't want people to see about me. I have great freedom when I can go to a brother like Ricky and say, man, I screwed up. And he gives me a great hug and says, man, Jesus has died for that. There is great freedom, friends, in exposing your darkness to the light because Jesus will forgive it all. There is no sin. There is no darkness in you that Jesus will look at and say, no, I can't cover that. He's the God of gods, the King of kings, the great Lord who has come to save us and redeem us all. And he's asking you, would you come into the light? Friends, that's the amazing God that we serve. So my question for you is, who do you fear? The Gospel of Matthew has been revealing to us over and over again that the King is near. The kingdom is coming and breaking in time and time again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge is what Proverbs tells us. And that God that we get to know through the scriptures that's revealing himself to us is a forgiving, gracious, loving, compassionate God who continues to offer us light in the middle of our darkness, welcomes us home to be freely forgiven of that and have everlasting life with him. So whatever it is that you may be running from or that you may be hiding, would you give that over to Jesus? Would you confess that to someone today? Would you go to a brother or sister in the faith? Would you confess your sin to them, and would you let Jesus shine the light of forgiveness and grace over that? Jesus is much bigger than anything we could ever do. Jesus is an amazing God who continues to forgive time and time again, relentlessly pursuing us. So would you come to Jesus? Would you respond to the great prophet and king who has come to call us to repentance, to live in his marvelous light and in the freedom and the forgiveness of sin? That's a free gift. Would you take it? Let's pray. Jesus, you are such an amazing, gracious God. You are the God who redeems broken people. You are the God who is willingly come to die as an innocent man 
so that we could be clothed in your righteousness. Jesus, what an amazing gift it is that we could hide behind you. God, I pray that you would move in our hearts today, that you would lead us to confess our sin, and that we wouldn't just confess, but that we would actually repent of it, that we would turn away, that we would ask for your forgiveness, and that you would uh, share and show with us your grace. Would the people around us shower us with grace and forgiveness and walk with us as we continue to try and repent, Lord? I pray and beg you that you would continue to do this in our hearts, God. And if there's anybody in the room who doesn't know you, Jesus, would they come to see that you are a forgiving, gracious, kind king who welcomes anybody in? Lord, I pray that you would redeem hearts and that you would move us closer to you and that we would look more like you each and every single day. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.